And it's another week. This is Andrew Wood, Executive Director of Hope Resource Center. Thank you so much for tuning in, whether that be live over at Joy620 or you're listening to the podcast at investinghope.com, Google Play, iTunes, Podbean, wherever podcasts are found. You can find this show. This is a big week for us at Hope Resource Center. We have our banquet. We're celebrating 25 years of service. We're, we're celebrating the work that's been done over the past two decades and going to talk about what's happening at Hope now and into the future. Going to share amazing patient testimony. Uh, just going to be a great night. Uh, you can learn more about that at investinghope.com. It's going to be at the press room. It's April 28th, uh, which is Thursday. It's going to be a fun night. I, I can't wait to see what the Lord does through, uh, through that and through the partners that we're going to see from that. So excited about uh, the banquet this week. But man, we got a lot to talk about. Uh, with some some news coming out of the country with, uh, you know, any really within the next couple of months, we're going to see and hear a decision from the Supreme Court on the Dobbs case out of Mississippi. And so what does that look like? Uh, if we get uh, a row overturned, what should states do? What what should be the the legislative and policy Agenda. There's a great piece over at the Public Discourse, <clears throat> written by Josh Craddock, uh, talking about what that should look like uh, when it comes to Congress, when it comes to uh, policies and a legislative agenda. The article says this: If the Supreme Court finally overrules Roe this summer, Congress will no longer be able to blame the Supreme Court for its inability to act to protect human life in the womb. There will be more pressure than ever on pro-life legislators to take courageous action to support expectant mothers and to protect human life in the womb. What should that post-Roe legislative agenda look like? In addition to legislation that tangibly supports families and expectant mothers, legislators should introduce strong anti-abortion legislation that recognizes the personhood of the unborn, strips federal courts of jurisdiction over the statute, and empowers individuals to enforce it through a private right of action. And if such strong medicine is too politically impractical, uh, in, in, uh, pro-life legislators should at the very least tax abortion providers and abortion pill manufacturers as a mechanism for promoting a pro-life social policy. Most importantly, Congress must recognize the unborn children are legal and constitutional persons within the meaning of the 5th and 14th Amendments. This is not a new idea. Every Republican Party platform going back to 1984 has called for, quote, legislation to make clear that the 14th Amendment protection applies to children before birth, end quote. Uh, as the author of this article and others have explained, preborn children are persons within the original public meaning of Section 1 of the 14th Amendment, which provides that no state may, quote, deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, end quote, or deny any person the equal protection of the laws. State laws that permit elective abortion and disc uh, discriminatorily withhold application of generally applicable homicide laws violate this constitutional principle. Recognizing personhood is an exercise of Congress's responsibility under Section 5 of the 14th Amendment, which confers on Congress Quote, the power to enforce by appropriate legislation the provisions of the 14th Amendment. All the Supreme Court and the executive branch both, although the Supreme Court and the executive branch both have important roles to play in ensuring that constitutional rights are secured for preborn children, Section 5 vests primary enforcement authority 
in Congress. Thus, Congress should enforce the constitutional guarantees of due process of law and equal protection of the laws for unborn children nationwide, barring states from giving effect to permissive abortion laws. Such legislation could provide, for example, that no state or person acting under state law or in interstate commerce as an alternative basis may discriminate on the basis of whether a human being has been born. The law should specifically apply to any state prohibition against homicide and require that any person who commits an abortion shall be subject to the same or comparable penalties as exists under state law for other homicide cases. Advocates of abortion would no doubt sue to stop a statute like this from going into effect, and with enough shots on goal could probably find a judge to enter a nationwide injunction. The solution to this overreach is to eliminate federal courts' power to entertain these abusive suits. Lower federal courts are created by statute, and their jurisdictions can be limited by statute. As Justice Clarence Thomas explained, excuse me, for a plurality of the Supreme Court in a 2018 case, when Congress strips federal courts of jurisdiction, it exercises a valid legislative power no less than when it lays taxes, coins, money, declares war, or invokes any other power that the Constitution grants it. The Supreme Court is created by the Constitution, not statute, but Article 3, Section 2, empowers Congress to make such exceptions to its federal appellate jurisdiction as Congress deems fit. Again, Justice Thomas said this, quote, Congress generally does not violate Article 3 when it strips federal jurisdiction over a class of cases. To the contrary, the constitutionality of jurisdiction stripping statutes is well established, end quote. Congress may and should strip jurisdiction from all federal courts to hear any cause of claim, including constitutional claims challenging the validity of Congress's personhood recognition and prohibition against permissive state abortion laws. By withdrawing from federal jurisdiction cases that challenge the validity of its personhood recognition, Congress can defend its determination against the meddling of unelected federal judges. Sadly, because pro-lifers cannot rely on prosecutors or the administrative state to enforce their legislative preferences, it is good policy to deputize the public to help ensure compliance with Congress's pro-life legislation. To forestall non-enforcement, Congress should confer on private individuals a cause of action to sell to sue any person, including any federal, state, or local official acting under state law or in interstate commerce to provide to, to deprive an unborn child's rights secured by the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendment. Texas led the way in empowering citizens to use private rights of action to enforce anti-abortion policy in its SB8 legislation, which prohibits abortion after the detection of an unborn child's heartbeat. But private rights of action are common and effective in many other policy areas, too. Many states, such as California, allow any individual to sue to enforce laws focused on unfair competition, false advertising, privacy, civil rights, and many other areas. Federal law authorizes private suits to enforce environmental protection laws, credit reporting laws, and anti-trafficking laws, to name a few. There's nothing novel or unprecedented about using the enforcement mechanism, and nothing less could ensure the law is vigorously enforced. A bill with these three features would have an important messaging educational purpose, but of course, such a bill would be unlikely to achieve the 60-vote Senate threshold to avoid the filibuster and achieve cloture, even after the 2022 midterm election, where it appears conservatives are going to win the House and the Senate. So in the meantime, another track or another tack is warranted. 
Pro-life legislators should levy a tax on abortion providers. This provision could be enacted into law with 51 Senate votes through the reconciliation process and could be added to must-pass legislation. Chief Justice John Marshall was right when he said that, quote, the power to tax is the power to destroy, end quote. Although current Supreme Court doctrine does not allow Congress to use its taxation power to punish private conduct, it comes very close. Chief Justice Roberts notoriously upheld the Affordable Care Act on this basis, writing that the Supreme Court will, quote, decline to closely examine the regulatory motive or effect of revenue-raising measures, end quote, so long as the tax does not become so punitive that the taxing power does not authorize it. Just as Congress's taxing power has been used to all but prohibit automatic firearms and to effectively require individuals to purchase health insurance, a special sin tax on abortion providers and abortion pill manufacturers could, consistent with Supreme Court precedent, regulate individual behavior and cripple the abortion industry. Once the Supreme Court decides Dobbs, congressmen and women who ran on pro-life platforms will have a clear path to act on their campaign promises to protect human life in the womb. After decades of tragedy and intense efforts, grassroots pro-life voters expect their elected representatives to do everything in their constitutional power to protect life. Pro-life legislators should seize the opportunity to enact a post-row legislative agenda that both empowers parents to raise their children and effectively prohibits abortion. Both goals, goals are well within Congress's constitutional power. Yes. Yes. Look, the, the reality is you have, you have folks on the left that are pro-abortion, that if Roe is overturned, they're looking to codify abortion into the federal law. Right now, there is no federal law. There's a federal court decision from 1973. And, and you have liberals, uh, pro-abortion supporters, that have been screaming for legislation from Congress that would codify abortion and uh, make abortion accessible and available everywhere in this country. Now, if Roe is overturned, it goes to the states. And so then the states will legislate on abortion. So is abortion legal here? Maybe. Is abortion illegal there? Maybe. And then it's going to look very different. Some states will say up to 15 weeks. Some states will say no abortion at all. Some states will say abortion all the way through nine months. Some states like California and uh, and others are, are making a play to even allow abortions after pregnancy. Uh, and, and so we're having these conversations now. So why wouldn't pro-life legislators in Congress seek to codify and protect life? Why wouldn't they use the personhood amendment? Why wouldn't they use the 14th Amendment to make their argument? Why wouldn't they use taxing Abortion providers. Why wouldn't they? The only reason they wouldn't is because they, they're all talk and no action. You see, for a long time, pro-lifers could say on the campaign trail, look, we're for ending abortion, we're for defunding Planned Parenthood, we're for doing this, we're for doing that. And then they get to Washington and they would go, our hands are tied because of Roe. Our hands are tied. We, we can't do this. We can't do that. Our hands are tied. Well, if Roe is overturned, their hands are no longer tied. And I find it interesting that, that even this article points out that, that even if we codify legislation to protect personhood of unborn children, 
that, that they, they believe there are some states that are not going to enforce that. Yet we've had pro-life states just go along with abortion legislation. We've had pro-life states just say, well, our hands are tied. Well, our hands aren't tied. And if Roe is overturned, our hands certainly will not be tied. What would it look like for a a pro-life Congress, a pro-life Senate, a pro-life president to pass legislation that, that celebrated personhood, that celebrated life? Yeah, there'd be a lot of people upset. There'll be a lot of people that say, hey, you're taking away the rights of women. But, but the reality is, abortion takes away the rights of women, of men, of white people, of African Americans, of Asian people, of Hispanic people. You see, abortion ends the life of humans. And so if anything is removing rights... It's the ending of a life of someone. If somebody took my life today, they took away all my rights. And in the same way, with abortion, we are taking away the rights of humans. Just because they're not born yet doesn't mean they're any less human. And that's the part that always uh, irks me, is because even those that are abortion supporters... Guess what? You grew inside of a womb. There was a moment in time where your argument is saying that you were less human. Is that where we want to be as a society? We have seen what our culture does in decades past where we said people were less of human. Is that the direction we want to go? I pray it's not. It seems like our culture wants to go that direction because we want to control our lives and we want to do this and we want to do that. And by by making those arguments, we believe ending the life of an unborn child is going to allow us to climb that ladder or do this or do that. Or it's just going to go away. No, it doesn't. It doesn't just go away. And so the question is, will our Congress, if we if pro-lifers take the majority, will they be have the guts to stand truly with legislation to stand for life time will tell we'll be back so today that's what we're talking about is what are we going to do what are we prepared to do what are pro-life congressmen and women prepared to do if they take majority of the house and senate in a post-Roe era. What are we prepared to do? What's a pro-life president prepared to do in a post-Roe era? I don't know. I, don't, I can't answer that for them. Uh, but let's hope that their actions will match their words. Look, the interesting thing about the, the pro-life stance has been a, a huge political win in terms of campaign funds and getting people to the polls But there's been very little done at a national level 
once those folks make it to Washington. We haven't seen a lot done from those folks that claim to be pro-life. So if we live in a post-Roe era, they're going to have an opportunity to finally put some of those words to action. So we'll see what happens. There's an article I want to focus on now that over at World News. Uh, it's called, Will Americans See the Truth? It's written by Caitlin Shelton. And it talks about justice. What does justice mean when it comes to abortion? The youngest age for a baby to survive preterm birth is 21 weeks and two days, at least for now. That baby's name is Richard Hutchinson, and today he is almost two years old. Meanwhile, the bodies of five babies are now in possession of the Metropolitan Police Department of the District of Columbia. Those babies were either aborted or murdered shortly after birth and were potentially at close to 32 weeks of gestation when they died. Up to 11 weeks past the date of a baby's ability to survive outside of a mother's womb. What is the difference between Richard Hutchinson, who was given life-saving care in the neonatal intensive care unit, and these babies whose bodies were uncovered at the Washington Surgery Clinic in Washington, D.C. in October of 2021? One baby was wanted and thus offered all the legal protection and medical care necessary to save his life, while the others were not. A governmental system that forbids the murder of infants but allows abortion is intellectually and morally inconsistent. U.S. laws protect babies who are born but not the unborn in most cases, regardless of their gestational age or level of development. The only difference between the two murders is the location of the baby, one outside the mother's womb, the other inside. It's legal, according to U.S. law, to dismember, decapitate, poison, or slice a child's throat inside of the mother's womb, but the same acts would be illegal if the baby is outside the womb. Then you'll be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. Unless, of course, you are abortionist, Caesar Santangelo of the Washington Surgery Clinic. Santangelo was captured on video talking about what he does when babies are born alive inside his abortion center. It will expire shortly after birth. It's all about how vigorously you do things to help a fetus survive at that point. We would not help it. That's what he said. Not helping a baby born alive, even after an attempted abortion, directly violates federal law and amounts to criminal infanticide. The District of Columbia does not protect unborn babies from late-term abortions, but abortion centers in the district are still bound by federal law, which restricts abortion methods and requires care to be given to babies born alive during a failed attempt at an abortion. Based upon the size and nature of the bodies found, one was even still in the amniotic sac, experts suspect the Washington Surgery Clinic violated the Federal Partial Birth Abortion Ban Act and the Born Alive Infants Protection Act. But D.C. Mayor Browser, or Bowser and the D.C. Metropolitan Police Department not only refuse to investigate the abortionist or his abortion center, but also won't even order the examination of the dead bodies of the five babies in their custody. This, even though examining deaths due to criminal abortion, falls first within the statutes and regulations that govern the D.C. Chief Medical Examiner. On April 5th, 23 U.S. Senators and Representatives sent a letter to Mayor Bowser and Chief of Police Robert J. Conti demanding that the Chief Medical Examiner conduct a thorough investigation into the death of each child, including an autopsy as well 
as to allow an independent licensed pathologist to confirm the findings. Instead of meeting those demands, Mayor Bowser completely turned the tables. She said the district would not conduct an autopsy on the bodies, but promised to investigate the pro-life activists who obtained the dead bodies and turned them over to the police. Meanwhile, the U.S. Department of Justice used the FBI to raid the homes and arrest the nine pro-life activists, but not the abortionist, nor did authorities close the abortion center, which is likely in violation of federal law. The Justice Department is failing in its self-professed mission to ensure fair and impartial administration of justice for all Americans, when it consistently picks whom to seek justice against and whom it will offer to look the other way. Moreover, when our government prioritizes punishing pro-life Americans over investigating or punishing potential murderers of the worst type, those who commit infanticide, we must wonder how exactly, uh, exactly how just our so-called justice system actually is. As our nation prepares to receive the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in Dobbs, which could reverse nearly five decades of abortion on demand throughout the country, we continue to see the illogical, inhumane, and evil effects of abortion on our nation. When local and federal officials are willing to close their eyes to potential infanticide and states continue to push for extreme allowances for abortion until and after birth, it's clear that the moral reasoning of many Americans is deficient, if not downright depraved. Even if all of these babies were aborted legally, it is without question and crystal clear to see that this practice is neither ethical nor empowering to women. This is what neonatal autologist Dr. Kendra Kolb told Live Action News. This is the American horror story that we call choice on full display for all to see. But will Americans refuse to see it? What happened in D.C., and I talked about it a few weeks ago, is is not just happening in D.C. Look, the, the reality is abortion is uh, ugly, messy, and, and when, when stories like this are uncovered, there's a reason why you don't see it on national news. There's a reason why CNN, MSNBC, ABC, NBC, CBS, there's a reason why they're not covering it. They're not covering because they'll say, oh, it's too graphic. They'll say, well, it's, uh, you know, it's going to trigger people. They'll say, well, we don't want to, you know, we don't want to talk about abortion. This is a right. But the reason why they don't do that is because if people see that, it's going to change things. Look, we live in a, a time where, you know, depending on how you phrase the question, the bulk of the country would, would claim to be pro-choice. They believe a woman has a right to have an abortion or not. It's up to her. Now, when you ask that question and say, what about in the second and third trimester, those numbers shrink. Why do they shrink? It's because people have seen on ultrasound images, babies in the second and third trimester, and they go, that's a baby. They may argue it's a clump of cells in the first trimester, but second and third trimester, they don't make that argument. And so if they believe that, then that's why they're, the numbers shrink when you get into the second and third trimester. What do you think would happen if those folks, because how many of those folks are Googling Late-term abortion. 
How many of those folks are Googling what an abortion is and what it actually does and what it looks like? I'd say zero. Zero to, to a few. But if they were to see, like I've seen, a late-term abortion be performed, it changes everything because it's barbaric. If they were to see the images of those five babies in Washington, D.C., they wouldn't say that's a clump of cells. They wouldn't say that's a blob of tissue. They would say, that looks like my daughter. That looks like my son when he was born. That looks like the newborn baby I'm breastfeeding right now. That, that's what they would say. So, of course, the national media is not going to bring attention to that because that changes everything. But if we're going to claim to be a people of, for justice, what about the justice for those five babies? Just for those. Not to mention the thousands that are aborted every day, but what about those five babies? Any justice for them? We'll be back. You made me so very happy. So there's a lot of folks that are trying to prepare for a post-Roe era. There, there's a lot of talk that's going around about what to do from pro-lifers, what, what pro-choicers are, are thinking about. And, uh, and, and so we, we have this back and forth of what does that mean? And, and what does it look like for us in a post-Roe era? And even, even some folks are, are looking at what's happening in Texas and going, what does that mean? What, what is happening in Texas with the, with the new law that we saw uh, there? And, and there's an article over at Slate. This is one that I, uh, a publication I don't typically uh, refer to. But it's interesting because it's from the perspective of a pro-abortion author and a pro-abortion um, mindset, and the article is titled The Most Unexpected Consequence of the Texas Abortion Ban. It says this, in a third floor medical suite with sweeping views of a Texas highway, staff members at Houston Women's Reproductive Services are adapting to the new demands the state restrictive abortion laws placed on their jobs. They try to schedule every patient for a visit on the same day she calls, lest that patient lose a single valuable day of the narrow window for care. They linger on the phone with frantic women who are already terrified that they'll be forced, notice that word, to carry an unwanted pregnancy to term, even though they are just a day or two late on their period. And they have pivoted, in many cases, to dispensing emotional and logistical support instead of medical care. The clinicians are confronting novel reactions from patients, too, in addition to questions of spiraling desperation how much time do I have? Why can't you help me? Where do I go? How can I get there? They are seeing an unprecedented outpouring of anguish. They have also noticed a troubling rise in feelings of regret. Because under the Texas law, people dealing with unplanned pregnancies have little time to consider their options. The law prohibits abortions using threat of expensive lawsuits brought by, they call them private bounty hunters, of course, if they occur after the onset, here's that phrase, of fetal cardiac activity. Now remember, folks, and I've gone on and on about this on this show. Fetal cardiac activity is a phrase that has been added literally within the last year and a half or two years. Before then, we all called it a heartbeat. Pro-life, pro-choice. Everybody called it a heartbeat. Now, 
well, that's humanizing the baby. We got to call it fetal cardiac activity. Guess what? If I passed over right now and the, they called the EMT and the EMT came in, what are they going to look for? Fetal cardiac activity. Why? Because they need to know if my heart is beating. Like that is what we're doing. And they're using phrases to dehumanize the baby. That's what, that's what they want to do. It takes about five weeks for the first glimmer of a pregnancy, a gestational sac, to show up on a uterine ultrasound. About seven days after that, fetal cardiac cells begin moving in unison, at which point clinics like Houston Women's Reproductive Services are no longer permitted to terminate the pregnancy. The week in between these two milestones is a precious, fast-closing window that patients can easily miss. The timing is made even trickier by another Texas law that requires each patient to see the same doctor for two separate appointments scheduled at least 24 hours apart before terminating her pregnancy. Now, why is that? You see, this is a permanent decision. You terminate that pregnancy, there's very little chance of of going back. Now, we do have some research of abortion pill reversal and and, and the like, but for the most part, once once you do it, there's no coming back. It's a forever decision. And they're upset now because, oh, no, what are they going to do? And, and we don't get to do medical stuff now. Now we're trying to counsel these people. And, and the reality is these folks need counseling. They need someone that's going to care about them in this difficult time. The average patient used to come to the office around the seventh or eighth week of pregnancy. Now many patients are coming in so early that their pregnancies are undetectable by the ultrasound machine, even if their pregnancy test comes back positive. They often distraught. They're often distraught when told to return in a week for another ultrasound, especially if their work and family obligations would prevent them from traveling out of state if they missed their chance in Texas. Women are peeing on sticks every day, said uh, Catalina Lino, 51, the lead nurse at Houston Women's Reproductive Services. People are coming in in chaos and desperation with this anxiety that you're either too early or you're too late. Marjorie Ison, 65, a patient counselor at the clinic, said, quote, every time the doctor and the technicians go into a room to do an ultrasound with the patient, everybody's holding their breath, just hoping we're not to get we're not going to get cardiac activity. What what a sad state of affairs. So you have these women coming in and they're stressed and they're they're concerned. And they're, they're sitting down with people that are going, oh, we got to get you this abortion. we got to get you this abortion. Instead of saying, let's take a deep breath here. Instead of saying, why do you feel like abortion is the only option? Instead of having real conversations with real humans, the narrative and the agenda is clear at these abortion clinics. We want to get rid of your child. That is the agenda. That is the number one Mission statement. You can't have this baby. You can't have your dreams and this baby. You're not in a relationship. Your boyfriend doesn't, doesn't want to be with you. Your boyfriend doesn't want this baby. You don't want this baby. You can't get your degree and have this baby. These are the messages these women that are already in vulnerable situations are hearing. So they're, they're full of anxiety. They're full of stress. And what is happening in these abortion clinics is they're seeing that amplified. And now the abortion clinic is saying, it's just, we just hope there's no fetal cardiac activity. Who talks like that? 
The memo went out a, a year and a half, two years ago from heartbeat to, to fetal cardiac activity. And, and so now that is the language that they use. Because when a woman sits down with you, if you say it's just fetal cardiac activity, to them it may not sound like a heartbeat. But if they hear a heartbeat, oh, what, what is that I see on the screen? What is that I hear? Oh, that's just fetal cardiac activity. It's not even a heartbeat. It's just some electrical pulses that mean nothing. That is what they're being told. That's not true. Because we know that it's a heartbeat. But yet they know if we change the language, then we can convince these folks of of getting an abortion. A single day can make the difference between a simple set of pills taken at home. Look, at a simple set of pills taken at home in the expensive, stressful, and time-consuming process of seeking an abortion out of state. That sentence, the depravity in that sentence, we're living in a time where, where culture is saying we, we've dehumanized the population. We, we have no justice for certain populations. We, we, are, we are terrible people, and, and we hate everybody. And we're living in a culture where the left would say all of that about the right. And then the left would write a sentence that says, a single day can make the difference between a simple set of pills that can be taken at home. What's that mean? That means that the, the woman is going to have an abortion at her house with no medical care oversight. That means they take one pill, and then the next day they take another pill. And, and those pills in combination in the pregnancy, those pills in combination make the environment in the body so toxic that the baby and the body pushes the baby out. First the baby is killed, and then the body pushes it out. It causes for a, uh, a forced miscarriage, which in that case is a forced ending of the life of the baby. My wife had a miscarriage with our second, second pregnancy. That was not forced. She didn't take any pills for that. It was crushing. We sobbed. We mourned that death. And for this author to write in this sentence, just a simple set of pills, that's all it is. They're not going to mention the bleeding. They're not going to mention the, the, uh, how distraught they may be when, when some side effects might occur. They're not going to mention those things. It's just a simple set of pills that end the life of a human. The women who work at the Houston Clinic are diverse in age and life experience, but they share a sense of purpose that drives their work. Many entered abortion care as clinic volunteers drawn in by the prospect of helping women live full, independent lives. Because you can't, you can't live a full and independent life with a child, apparently. My wife's one of the most independent women I know. She has four children. What, what about that? Some, like Eisen, have worked in the field for 30 years or more. If they didn't feel personally invested in abortion rights, the staff members told me they wouldn't show up every day to preserve in a medical practice or to persevere in a medical practice the state is actively trying to obstruct. Several employees expressed gratitude for the abortions they were able to get when they were younger, which allowed them to pursue parenthood, education, and career paths on their own terms. Think about that. That is one of the most selfish things I've ever read. 
You know, we're, we're so grateful we were able to get abortions when we were young so that we could put ourselves first. Is that the culture mindset we want? So it came as the demoralizing shock when the staff began noticing how the Texas law, also known as SB8, filled some of their patients with frantic uncertainty. Since it opened in 2019, Houston Women's Reproductive Services have provided one single medical service, medication abortion. So it's reproductive. It's called Houston's Women Reproductive Services. They provided one single medical service. Medication, abortion, those simple pills we talked about earlier. So in previous years, the vast majority of patients had already arrived at the decision to get an abortion when they made their initial appointments. Now about once a week, a patient won't show up for a second appointment or she'll come to the clinic for that second visit seemingly ready to pick up her medication and then leave without it. Sometimes women will go home without the pills and call later that same day having changed their minds again and ask if there's still time to come back. Occasionally, a patient who rushed to get an abortion will contact the clinic later to express feelings of ambivalence or remorse. They frequently tell us, I, don't, I just don't feel like I've had enough time to think about this. The legislators who passed the ban claim to want Texans to have fewer abortions, but in fact, in some ways, we think it's rushing people. That's what they're saying. They, they don't mean that. We'll finish this and more when we come back. So as we finish up today, I do want to point out a couple more things in this article. Uh, They say, in other words, the restricted nature of the law does more than hamper a patient's access to abortion. It distorts her decision-making process. So they're trying to make an argument that this law in Texas is actually producing more abortions, even though the data doesn't support that at all. The data says right the opposite. But, of course, this abortion clinic that only performs abortions would, would make you want to think otherwise. And then I thought it was interesting. They said this in Houston, when people had more time to process the news of their pregnancies, they'd usually arrive at the clinic secure in their choice. Maybe they'd already spent a couple days envisioning how having a child, often a third or fourth child, would change their life's trajectory or talk through their opinions with a partner or options with a partner, parent or trusted friend. So it's okay for them to talk to a partner, a trusted friend, a parent. Notice when when pro-lifers say abortion is wrong, they say that's a decision between a doctor and a patient. But here they're saying that as long as your friend, your parent, your partner pushes you to abortion, it's, it's completely fine to take their advice. They're also saying, notice the language, they're all about dehumanizing, but then here they say maybe they've already spent a couple days envisioning how having a clump of cells A blob of tissue? No, they say having a child, often a third or fourth child, would change their life's trajectory. So they're admitting here that it's a baby. They're admitting here that it's a child. They're admitting here that we already have some other kids at home, and we know this one's a child as well. And that might throw a wrench into some things. They're admitting that there. Yet they often say that it's pro-lifers that are extreme. I'm not going to continue to read the article. It's, it's awfully long. But that's where they are. Look, they're, they're upset because they're not able to provide the abortions uh, anymore. And, and that's a quote-unquote women's health clinic that the only service they provide is abortions. The only service they provide 
since 2019 has been just those simple pills that you take at home. Now, they're not going to talk about the percentage of those folks that take those at home that end up in the emergency room. They're not going to talk about that. They're not going to talk about the folks that uh, that might regret that decision. And they, they, they reference some polls. In looking at polls, they say a lot of women don't regret the decision of abortion. Well, what do you think they're going to say in those polls to strangers that they don't know? You think they're going to tell them, yeah, I regret it? Yeah, it was the worst decision I've ever made in my life. There's many women that, and men that they won't even admit that it happened. That doesn't mean it has no lasting effects. It means they have shame. They have guilt. They have, uh, they're carrying around that burden. You see, that is why we opened our doors at Hope Resource Center 25 years ago. Because these women don't need to be coerced. These women don't need to be uh have more burdens thrown on their shoulders. These women that are in chaos and anxiety-filled uh, days, they, they don't need to be looked at and said, yeah, you can't do this. Yeah, you, 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 can't, you can't achieve the life you want and, and, and have this baby. How is that empowering? Is that feminism? You can't? I thought feminism was anything you can do, I can do better. Well, guess what? There is one thing that I can't do, no matter how hard I try. I cannot have a child. You can. Having a child should be empowering. It's the ultimate in femininity. It's the ultimate feminism argument. Anything you can do, I can do better. And I can also have a child and you can't. But instead, the, the modern feminism, the modern movement of today is saying, no, you can't achieve your dreams. And have this baby. You can't climb that career ladder and have this baby. You can't be a single mom and have this baby. So it's all about what you can't do. Instead of saying, no, you can do this. You can be whatever you want to be. And have this baby. You'll just be a mom while you're doing it. And be even more impressive. But instead, the mantra is, you can't, you can't, you can't, you can't. Instead of, you got this, and we're going to be here for you. Like I wish that that clinic in Houston would say, you know what, we've seen the error of our ways, and we're going to start providing support for these moms that, that are having their children. No, instead, they're saying, we've got to have more abortions. We've got to get more pills to them. We're better than that. I hope we're better than that. Again, that's why we do what we do at Hope Resource Center. Thank you for partnering with us. Learn more at investinghope.com. We'll talk to you next week.